You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. I'm Rodney Davis. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Welcome to the Beltway Briefing. Thank you very much for uh, listening to another episode uh, where we do not have our host and fearless leader, Howard Schweitzer. Neither do we have Mark Alderman. Neither do we have Rodney Davis. Who we do have, though, is Martin and Martin. Uh, next gen Beltway Briefing. This is this is what the people want. The power duo of Martin and Martin uh, is with us today. Patrick Martin and Caitlin Martin. We have both sides of the aisle. We're ready to go. Mono a womano, and we're gonna take it on the politics of the day, which which have been quite interesting over the course of the last week for sure. However, Congress is gone, and everybody Thanks is on. super happy about that. Before we jump in, I will say one quick note. Last November, a year ago, there was a decision made that if Congress was in session for more than three weeks, somebody may get killed on the floor of the House of Representatives a la mid-1800s. And what we have seen is Congress, the House in this case, has been in for 10 weeks straight. And several people almost got killed in the House and in the Senate uh, this week. And so everybody is very glad that they have now break. They're on break for Thanksgiving. Caitlin, give us a little rundown. How'd they get out of town here with the uh, with the, the CR and government funding? Well, Speaker Johnson accomplished what many were very skeptical he would be able to accomplish early on in the week. On Saturday, he released text for a what he considered ladder CR, where some government programs will be funded through mid-January, others through early February, allowing time for the House to continue making their way through the several remaining appropriations bills on the floor through regular order, like the this Republican majority has has said that they would do. The Senate passed, you know, they they got this all done by Wednesday, which really by by Tuesday, but the Senate passed it on late Wednesday night, which, you know, was a surprise to a lot of folks. Then they, you know, instead of letting them go home, they continued trying to vote on appropriations bills on the floor. We had another failed rule that the Republican majority, you know, continues to put these bills on the floor and they continue to fail via rule vote. But to your point, there was a lot of uh, consternation in the halls of Congress this week. I think it's really good that folks are going to be able to go home, regroup, spend time with the family. They've got a busy agenda, you know, when they come back. Yeah. Patrick, how does it feel for Democrats to be in charge in the House again? It was kind of unexpected. I mean, we talked about a few podcasts, like, I mean, regardless of if you think the laddered CR is gimmicky or not, like they, they got it done. And You know, no one's talking about overthrowing Speaker Johnson, which just, again, points to like how much some of these people really didn't like Kevin McCarthy, that they let Johnson do that, which they never would have let McCarthy do. So, yeah, I think Democrats were, you know, that there were some things they weren't wild about, some provisions related to WIC funding that, you know, they had to kind of swallow. But at the end of the day, I think there was a feeling, to your point, Towner, of like everyone wanting to get out of town. And just kind of move on. I, I was talking to someone at home about Towner, your point. And I thought it was so exactly right that you can't have these people together. And, you know, I'm sure our listeners, if you're out in the country, it's like, oh my God, poor Congress. They had to work for however many weeks in a row without a break. But 
it's it, what what is a better analogy is we're all about to go home for Thanksgiving uh, with our families for a week. What did you, what if you had to stay there with your family at Thanksgiving for like six to 12 weeks in a row? Everyone would Absolutely. lose their minds. Right. That's what it it's not Absolutely. about work. It's about being around a bunch of people that you love and don't like all at the same time. And yeah. it just hits a limit. And I think that's if America's trying to understand what Congress feels like, it's going home for Thanksgiving and not leaving until New Year's with your family. That's that's, <laughs> that's the, right. Yeah. That is possibly the best analogy I've ever heard for Congress, you know, and and being in DC. And you're you're exactly right. The the woe is me crowd, we always get it. We'll we'll all three of us will get it as soon as we go see family and we'll be like, man, we just went through a brutal stretch and Work was crazy. And they're like, you had to work every day, like all the rest of Americans. Congratulations. I'm so sorry for you. But you're right. The intensity is there. But it is it's like being with your family for a long, extended period of time, like after, after a week, kids are crying. Aunts and uncles aren't talking to each other, the whole thing. Now imagine pushing that out for for nine more weeks after that. You're exactly right. So great analogy, Patrick. Hopefully that that hits home for everybody uh, listening out there because- You're all several days away from feeling it. So yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the original decision was two weeks on, one week back in districts, and that would keep everybody nice and happy and hopefully uh, moving forward. But Speaker Johnson stepped out on a ledge here, no cuts in the continuing resolution. And Chip Roy uh, actually went to the floor the other day and lost his mind, by the way, just lost his mind. Absolutely lost it. It was pretty good. Yeah, he went to the floor and, uh, no, go ahead, Towner. Yeah, just absolutely lost his mind. Called strike one and strike two on Speaker Johnson. Uh, Strike one being no cuts in the CER. Strike two being Democrats had to carry the vote. Although I will say Republicans, a majority of Republicans supported the package. So was it 58% of caucus? It's more than I would have thought. I mean, it, I, yeah. I mean, if you're, it's majority of the majority and Democrats had to carry the CR. I mean, in a, in a weird way, it, it kind of made, it made sense, which is why I think it happened the way it did. Caitlin, what does this mean for December as they come back from Thanksgiving? What is the, the outlook there? And then, and then maybe we can get into to the beginning of 2024 because we're kicking this can. Well, to your point, yeah, we're going to continue having these fights in early next year. But what this does mean is that there will not be some end, big end of year omnibus that, you know, us in the government relations field really love because that's kind of the last train out of town to tack on client priorities. But we will have, you know, the decks have been cleared at least, you know, into the new year. And we will have hopefully some some floor time in the House and Senate to get a couple things done and over the finish line. The cannabis bill that Caitlin and I would really like to see get some consideration in the U.S. Senate will be it's on. the only thing on my Christmas list this Baker year. Baker Banking Act is at the top of my Christmas tree. Yes. The Martins have been on the Hill just doing safer banking. It seems like exclusively for a couple of years. So That's right. it's, yeah. uh, it's it has been a client project and a pet project all at the same time. And we're going to get it done. Yeah, we would like to see some progress. But yeah, I mean, Caitlin, your point's exactly right. There's not. It's going to be a different end of the year for us than we've seen the last couple of years. And if the analogy of Congress spending too much time together is like a family Thanksgiving gone on too long, all of the shenanigans in the committee hearings in the House floor and in the gym and 
people getting into it, it felt like half of the folks there were going to end up in Saturday detention because I, I don't think I've ever seen a week where it was getting this almost like physically violent between members. That was, that was just, it was unusual. Yeah, it really was. We had, we had multiple fights all over the place or almost fights, you know, Mark Wayne Mullen standing up and taking on the Teamsters president and almost, uh, you know, stepping down from the dais and stepping outside the machoism that was uh, so thoroughly with Bernie Sanders as I, yeah. as I during <laughs> the voice of reasons of hearing. Chairman Sanders, the peacemaking voice of reason of the U.S. Senate. Yeah, you know, it's been it's been a lifetime that Bernie Sanders has been yelling peace and uh, he knew how to do it there. Uh, He got everybody to calm down. So I was joking around. I mean, I assume that there's been physical altercations and Tom, I'm sure you've given oral history on like the best physical fights that have taken place over the last century and a half in the House and the Senate. But you know, these guys used to be drunk all day long. They, they, to my knowledge, everyone getting in these altercations was completely sober. And so it just yeah. speaks to a real animosity. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a blessing uh, that uh, we don't really have a a standardized dueling process uh, that is uh, still in Congress, uh, nor does everybody continue to carry around a walking cane, uh, which can be used as an instant weapon Uh, that sort of highlighted the late 1700s and early 1800s of uh, of Congress and and a lot of the violence that took place there. And it wasn't just member on member, it was member on reporter, uh, all sorts of fun things. So. but uh, but you know we had Kevin McCarthy uh, throwing some elbows at Early. Tim Burchett from uh, Tennessee, who's one of the the uh, agitators, frequent Freedom Caucus agitators, and uh, you had Matt Gates filing an ethics complaint against Kevin McCarthy for his assault on their mutual colleagues. So I don't know what the place has come to, but but again, we're very we're very glad they're they're out of dodge. In the meantime. We have a lot of Santos news popping. We may be uh, short a Republican member of Congress coming up here very briefly. Uh, Patrick, you want to start us off and walk us through that real quick? Well, there was nothing in the ethics report about his most egregious infraction, which is wearing these crew neck sweaters under his sport jackets that go like over his tie. I mean, I felt like that should have been at the top of the report. It's amazing compared to anything else that he does. It's just it's offensive to everyone. But yeah, I mean, the the ethics report was pretty clear. It said everything that reporters had, you know, put out there for months. And this was, you know, listen, Congress has a process to investigate. I think they did a really good job. The ethics report was not Tanner. I actually don't even know this, like if it was short or long. It felt like it was pretty it wasn't super long. I felt like it just kind of got to the point. It was pretty clear cut that he committed campaign fraud and. Mm-hmm. Uh, all bunch of different types of fraud. So I think, you know, uh, I think it's pretty certain that if he does not resign the week after Thanksgiving uh, or over the Thanksgiving break, that that he'll be voted out. I think you brought up on one of the last podcasts, will be the first member to be expelled since Jim Trafficking. And I, I really, I'm like of the view here. And I think after everything we've gone through with the speaker race, I think one of the dynamics that's changed is like, you know, Republican leadership was so vote conscious for so long about if we lose one, you know, we we don't really have a vote to spare. Well, after we've gone through this whole speaker, yeah. you know, overthrow, and I think the pressure that the other New York Republican members of Congress are they're saying this is not helpful to us as we're trying to run for re-election. We're going to get tied to this guy. 
I think this is going to be, assuming he doesn't resign, which maybe he will if he really sees the writing on the wall. I think it's it's completely appropriate to expel him. I think it'll be a bipartisan vote. And I think it's a good thing for the institution. I think all of us agree, like, you can't have people, we don't want a whole generation of politicians thinking you can just commit fraud to get into the U.S. House or any other democratically elected body. It's just, it's uncomfortable. It, it makes you feel like the whole thing's kind of a joke. And so I'm glad the Ethics Committee put out what they did. I'm glad a lot of members have already started to flip and say they're going to vote to expel him. It's, let's just get this guy out of here and, you know, schedule a special election and, and move on. Yeah. Totally and, agree. Guy yeah. is a complete charlatan. You know, it's amazing that he even has staff that are willing to work for him at this point. You know, some of the expenses and charges, OnlyFans accounts and Botox and charges at Sephora. I mean, complete ridiculousness. He needs to go. He deserves to be in jail. Not to mention the families and veterans that he defrauded through some of those um, fake fundraising organizations and completely agree. You know, it's, it's makes the House of Representatives look a little bit like a joke. It harms the races of these, you know, moderate New York Republicans who really are up there trying to get something done and to kind of be a wall against the Freedom Caucus and some of the more, you know, kind of crazy positions within the caucus. And it's, he's got to go. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he's I think he's going to go, as as Patrick said, and Caitlin, as you alluded to, the, the Ethics Committee uh, re- did release a report and the report is substantial, outlining a number of major campaign finance violations. And those violations were referred to the Department of Justice for criminal prosecution, which the Ethics Committee doesn't always do, by the way, is refer anything to the Department of Justice. The Ethics Committee, interestingly, did not take a stance on what should happen to Santos, usually they'll recommend a censure or they'll recommend in terrible cases expulsion or something along those lines. Interestingly enough, he would be the first sitting member of Congress, I think ever, I got to double check this, but at least in a century and a half probably, to not have been formally convicted of something and be expelled from the House. Now, I will say, temper that by understanding that most members of Congress, uh, when they when they commit some act that they probably are very guilty of, or even in the case of the last 30 years or so, if they are adulterous or something, they will still uh, resign of their own volition from Congress rather than face ethical charges in the House. So um, I read that too, Donner, and I do I do think it's interesting that that, that I, I think you're right. I actually do think he'd be the first one ever. And, and I think it I've thought about this a little bit. I think it's appropriate in my view. I'd love your guys' take too. And the reason I think it's appropriate is because a lot of times the crimes that these guys are committed of are in some way related to the fact that they're in office, if we're talking bribery or different things, or, you know, wire fraud or whatever. But they aren't necessarily directly related to how they got there. I think what makes this so different is that the underlying crime is that he essentially committed a fraud to get into Congress in the in the first place. Right. And I think that that's what for and I truly think on a bipartisan basis in the House, I think that's what's so offensive to so many members and and frankly, to the public is just that it makes such a mockery of 
the institution and of everything. And and we've said it on this podcast before. Shame on reporters and all these people. Shame on the DCCC research team. Shame on everyone for missing what was right in front of all of us. It just and you could go into, I mean, all sorts of different angles about this is what happens when. You know, our news outlets have to cut investigative journalism in favor of, you know, all this opinion stuff. We're, we're all sick of tired of all the time. But it really is like, I think, a rec- I think the reason that the House is going to be willing to act before he's convicted is they just know that it's putting the credibility of all of them and of the institution out in, on the line. Right. And that's why I think they'll probably go go through with it. I think so, too. And and a lot of this comes to uh, redistricting issues as well for New York. There are four uh, New York Republicans uh, who were elected rather surprisingly, which primarily led to Republicans taking the House. Those are those are typically D leaning seats. Not to say it's a shock that Republicans won uh, one or two of them, but the fact that they won all four of them, I think, was uh, was quite shocking. One of those. Uh, you wouldn't district- let that happen here in Illinois, Towner. I don't know what no, the, they would for for all of our New York That's Democratic how we have colleagues. Our colleague. uh, all of our New York listeners, New York Democratic colleagues, y- you know, y'all walk around with these big personalities. I don't know what you guys fell asleep at the wheel and you screwed it up and lost the house for us. So thanks a well, lot. I think it's Caitlin and I uh, probably would say it's fair to say that maybe the courts acted in a responsible manner for the first time in a while on redistricting as opposed to a political manner. But uh, but, you know, it's uh, it's nice to to see that that happened now redistricting going back through the courts in New York. Um, they're tr- New York uh, Democrats, primarily of state uh, folks are trying to change the lines and uh, get rid of those four, if at all possible, which which would theoretically endanger uh, the Republican majority, not that they haven't done anything on their own to endanger it naturally, but minus four seats is a, is a difficult thing to overcome. Caitlin, I, I'm going to put you on the spot because we really didn't talk about this beforehand, but Redistricting seems to be an issue that is a bigger issue in the Republican Party right now. Uh, folks are talking about it, especially through the South as well uh, as as with New York. Have you been hearing anything along those lines? And and um, as we all are looking to the 2024 elections, uh, thinking about since we're a, a little less than a year out, uh, thinking about the consequences for for the congressional elections. Well, I, I think to your point, Towner, I mean, the, the North Carolina maps that just came out are actually pretty favorable for Republicans. We might pick up a couple of seats there for the, you know, that could counterbalance the potential loss of some of these seats up in New York. But one thing that that has been a constant theme through some of my meetings this week, which was really interesting, is, you know, this whole political gerrymandering and redistricting really is a major problem. This is why we lose a lot of the moderate, pragmatic, middle-of-the-road seats because on both sides of the aisle, because of redistricting and constantly trying to, you know, kick the Brian Fitzpatrick's of the world out of their seats or the, you know, Michael Lawler's in New York, etc. And that's what part of the reason we're seeing such large swings. If you're a deep, deep, deep red state, you know, and you're a more moderate, pragmatic Republican, those guys are facing primaries from the far, you know, the far right or the far left on the other side of the aisle. And that's really something that's been, you know, long-term point of frustration for a lot of these members. And I think is what's leading to some of the serious divisiveness that we're seeing in the House today. 
Yeah, Patrick, we're we're also seeing a race to the exits happening in in the House of Representatives right now. Uh, certainly, this last week, while it's not a, a Democratic problem only, uh, because we saw Michael Burgess on the Republican side announces his retirement as well, and and a few others. Certainly, this week was was more heavy Democratic retirements than it was Republican. Any anything Sorry. you're picking up? Yeah, agreed. I mean, I think the D trip and Democratic leadership was was certainly not thrilled with some of the decisions that were made. Listen, when you have stars in the party too, you always know that running for statewide office or higher office is a real possibility. And I think with Abigail Spanberger, you know, it's all indications are she's going to run for governor and um, she's been a rising star in the party. But that that's a big loss for the D trip. She has been a proven vote getter in in what is not a layup district at all for Democrats. And now the recruitment window is much shorter. So you're going to have to get someone really good. These are seats that uh, there was, you know, two or three retirements this week. This could be the big gift, Christmas gift to the Republicans in terms of offsetting some of those seats like New York. And I think all this is leading to, you know, if we're looking a year out, who the heck knows what's going to happen. But I think the race for the House is going to be really close. I think the race for the Senate is going to be really close. I mean, I think you're looking at, Regardless of who wins the presidential election, you're looking at a Congress that probably looks pretty close to what we have now. Either each house could flip uh, the other way, or even if you have unified control by the Democrats or the Republicans, it's not going to be by very much. And so you're going to have this continued sort of dynamic of both parties trying to keep their people in line, seeing where bipartisanship can happen. But also you've got, you know, the the tough voices on both sides that don't want there to be compromise. So it's just going to make legislating, I think, really challenging for the next few years. Yeah. I mean, we saw some big names announce retirement this week Uh, on the on the D and on the R side. And I'll actually extend it out back a a week or or two uh, to include a few other names. But on the Dem side, uh, Dan Kildee was the most recent. His father, having been a member of Congress for decades uh, before he has served very well uh, for the institution for almost a decade and a half, probably, if I yeah. had Earl Bloom. Someone who's been also very open about the impact January 6th had on him personally. I mean, he's really been very public about how difficult it's been to serve the last couple of years. And and yeah, to your point, I mean, that's that's not necessary. It's it's another seat the Democrats are going to have to I have to focus on. Yeah. Uh, two that should be easy to defend for the Democrats from the Northwest, Earl Blumenauer uh, and Derek Kilmer, uh, who have both announced this week as well uh, their retirements. Blumenauer obviously being a, oh gosh, 25, 26 year uh, member of the House uh, and and a constant presence. One of uh, the first members to, to really seriously begin talking about cannabis reform. Absolutely. That's true. He was he was the leader. Yeah, Tanner. I mean, these are these are some, you know, within the Democratic caucus, these are some big names, some some people who I think had really hoped that this was going to be kind of their time for some of their pet issues. And, you know, there's just a there's a shelf life for everyone where I think you look at your life and you wonder if if it's time to kind of move on and do something else. Yeah. But even younger members, I mean, Derek Kilmer is a pretty young guy, comparatively speaking. Uh, John Sarbanes from Maryland, whose father was was governor of Maryland, is a pretty young guy, comparatively, even though he's been in the House for, for a number of years. On the Republican side, I mean, these are safe districts, being Maryland and, and Washington. Um, but on the Republican side, we're starting to see 
members who are just fed up with their own caucus, I think, more so than anything else. We saw the most recent one was was Mike Burgess, Dr. Burgess from uh, from Texas in between Fort Worth and Dallas. Uh, but Kay Granger preceded him. The the current chair of the Appropriations Committee announced her retirement. Um, Brad Winstrup, Dr. Winstrup uh, from well, Ohio. Some great uh, members of the DOC caucus, that's for sure. And a name who's been in the news a lot recently, Ken Buck, as a Freedom Caucus member, but still opposes the Freedom Caucus most of the time. Try to figure that one out. Uh, You never really know where his position is. But a long-serving member from Colorado and Debbie Lesko from Arizona, for example. Um, So the the retirements are, are piling up. Uh, right now. And it's going to make, you know, I was reminded before I flip it back to you guys, I was reminded that uh, uh, this last election cycle was the fourth largest turnover of members of Congress in the history of congressional elections. And that explains a lot. And nothing really changed except for the majority teetered over just by a few seats. Uh, it went from D plus what five to R plus five, uh, and the majority changed. But I think it was eighty five or eighty six seats had new members of Congress. And uh, you know, bringing it back to to our profession, when you have just talk for a second about the challenges when you have about 20% of Congress changing over every two years uh, and, and what we do in trying to uh, uh, to get to know those members and, and have long-term relationships. Caitlin? Well, look, there's always a big learning curve. Sometimes it presents an opportunity for us to get to know and build a new relationship and kind of get in early on some of our, our client issues and priorities and shape shape the, the policy thinking of of a newer member, but it's, it's complicated. It's, you know, they're, they're getting new staff. Oftentimes, you know, there's a lot of staff turnover in that first um, one or two years. There's a ton of frustration, particularly among the fact that a lot of these new members on the Republican side are women, they're moms. They're, I'm, I'm worried some of these folks are, are saying, you know, this is not what I signed up for being away from my family for, you know, weeks on end, taking votes until midnight that are going nowhere on appropriations bills that are failing on the floor, you know, elbow, elbows and punches being thrown in the hallway. And this is, it's, it's, it's tough. And it's, it's actually getting tougher, I think, to recruit some good candidates in some of these races, because they see what's happening up here, and they want no part of it. Yeah, Patrick, handicap this for us a little bit. You know, everybody's going home for Thanksgiving. How many, how many conversations are going to be had with their spouse or, or somebody else to say, why am I going back? It's going to be a lot. I mean, that's that's the I think what's most interesting for our viewers is that we've or our listeners rather we've seen a lot of retirements. We're going to see a lot more. There's there's going to be a bunch of people who call it you know over the holidays. It's just the nature of how you know for many of these folks the job just isn't fun anymore. And you know I think the McCarthy speaker kind of ordeal I think for both Republicans and Democrats in different ways I think was really it it highlighted just how tough it's going to be over the next few years to serve and I I think for me you know you mentioned some great members folks we've worked with Republicans and Democrats who we really like they the loss of some of these experienced hands is is a big loss but what actually is is worse than that is a lot of times the people who replace them and not you know that doesn't mean that 
good new members can't come in. I, I can speak personally to, you know, the, the newest member of the House of Representatives is a good friend of mine uh, who just got sworn in after winning a special election in Rhode Island. I'm thrilled and excited to see how he does. Yeah, thanks. It was, it was great. It was just a, it's a neat thing for him and his family. And I'm really thrilled for him. But, you know, as we've talked about, it goes back to gerrymandering and everything is these districts have gotten more red and blue as these more senior members retire who have been been there for several terms and have learned the process, they're getting replaced with folks that are way more hardline. And it's just going to make in an institution that requires compromise, you're increasingly getting members that have no interest in compromise. And that's going to make it a lot harder to accomplish anything. And so I I just that's the part that that I'm nervous about. On the Senate side, Towner, too, we obviously there was some big news with Senator Manchin announcing that he wasn't going to run for re-election. That was somewhat expected. I think there was some hope amongst Democratic leadership that he would, um, you know, I think he sort of had the blessing of leadership to leave the Democratic Party and run as an independent, and he might have had a a decent chance, but it would have been uphill. Uh, it would have been, you know, definitely the most difficult race of, of his career. And I am, um, yeah, another big loss, though, a member who I think people on both sides really like a lot and have gotten to work with. And yeah, just big news on the Democratic side. And in my view, almost completely closes the door on Democrats maintaining the Senate majority. I mean, while Republicans have found a way to screw it up the last couple of cycles, I, I just I am very pessimistic about Democrats chance to keep the Senate majority um, it, it would have to be an absolutely perfect set of circumstances that things can be really difficult to achieve with the current map. Well, and Republicans learned their lesson from last election cycle. You know, Senator Daines, the chairman of the NRSC, is getting involved in primaries and trying to, you know, throw early weight behind uh, the more electable candidates in these races. Um, you know, Arizona aside, that one we might. Yeah. Which should be the biggest layoff, right? Uh, I mean, you could you could win Arizona and shut the door on the whole thing. But yeah, that's that's a tough one. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be fascinated to see what happens over the next 12 months when all of these members and so many more retirements probably yet to come are completely untethered from party loyalty. Uh, this is going to be a, a bit of a free for all for the next 12 months. And there's a lot of big things that need to get done. You start to think quite a bit about uh, uh, returning from Thanksgiving and, and going immediately into finalizing negotiations uh, in theory on foreign aid package, mm -hmm. uh, Israel, Ukraine, uh, certainly disaster assistance at home, possibly Palestinian uh, assistance uh, for the Palestinian people and, uh, and, and a number of other uh, items that are on the docket. Uh, obviously, uh, just to wrap this up, the president was, was with President Xi this week um, and, and remains out on the West Coast uh, holding bilateral meetings. Can Congress get this funding across the finish line? This is, the I think, the big question for, for December. Stunning. I, I will just say, obviously, we all know we've talked about the dynamics of Israel aid, Ukraine aid, the division within the Democratic caucus. It is, I mean, if just 10 years ago, I mean, even five years ago, if you had told me that what happened in Israel would happen and that Congress would not have allocated any funding before they left town, it's just it, the whole thing's kind of stunning. It is. Caitlin, do you think Republicans are going to go for it? I mean, I feel like I'm 
very frustrated with the party on Ukraine funding and not understanding the need and the necessity and the importance there. And I've had many conversations and heated conversations about this issue. And I'd like to see them get there. I think the Senate, you know, might be needing to take the lead. Leader McConnell has been very, you know, firm on the need for both Ukraine and Israel aid and has been a true leader there. Um, One thing that I I will mention we, you know, saw several members Tuesday morning right after they viewed the awful, awful um, body cam Hamas footage. There was a briefing Tuesday morning that, um, you know, some members chose not to attend because they'd been to that kibitz just a year prior and knew and had met those families. And, you know, we need to continue making sure that they're aware and and this continues to be top of mind for these members as they're, you know, talking and quibbling about spending fights when our ally in Israel and in Ukraine really do need our support at this time. And it's, it's critical. So I hope they get it together, Towner. Maybe to end too, Towner, on a positive note, you know, Howard isn't on, but if he was on, I think you, I think our listeners would enjoy hearing that he got to attend the uh, march earlier this week on the National Mall against anti-Semitism, um, he had an incredible opportunity to be really close to kind of the action. There were Republican and Democratic elected officials there, folks from leadership, lots of folks from the White House, lots of folks from sort of all over kind of the Washington political spectrum and hundreds of thousands of attendees. And, you know, Howard indicated, I think, to all of us, Caitlin and Towner, that it was just an incredibly you know, beautiful, peaceful people yeah. coming together uh, from all over the country. People were bust in to take a really important stand against anti-Semitism. I got to town Tuesday morning and, you know, was kind of trying to make sure I navigated my way in around the traffic and everything. I I found it, it was as I was getting in, the march was just kind of starting to, to let out. It was just you could tell how moved everyone was. It wasn't a chaotic scene at all. It wasn't like some of those national mall marches where you feel like, oh, my gosh, like I'm kind of in the middle of something that's chaotic. It was just it was really moving to see, I think, how many people came to take such an important stand against something that is hateful and, and awful. Absolutely. Thank you for saying that. I I, uh, I think I told you, Patrick, there was a there was a police officer, a D.C. police officer quoted in The Washington Post the evening of the after the rally saying he thought he got thanked more in four hours than he has in the last four years. And uh, and awesome. I think all three of us can say that that's a that's a good thing to read uh, in the newspaper amongst a lot of bad news. That was a good thing to uh, to see. So, Caitlin, Patrick. Thank you very much. Uh, Two things I want to close on. The first is, despite uh, Howard and Mark trying to do this, he who shall not be named was not named on this podcast for potentially the first time in years, uh, and we will not name him. And so that's number one. And number two, I hope you both have a very happy and safe Thanksgiving, and I hope all of our listeners do as well. Everybody enjoy the break, get a little downtime, uh, be with your families and and have some good times. We'll be off next week for Thanksgiving, uh, but back uh, into the fray uh, for December and, and all the fights yet to come. Thank you both very much. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.